This is the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast. I'm John O'Halloran, your host, and today I'm going to be answering some questions about music production. Um, if you have any questions about Chalk Dinosaur, music production, um, Bean Mush, anything like that, uh, send them to chalkdinosaurpodcast at gmail.com. So these questions were sent by John Henderson, who is the guitar player of Chalk Dinosaur, and he's been getting into music production and recording, um, and he's starting his own uh, artist entity, Sky Ridge, and uh, he had some questions that he uh, wanted my opinion on about music production, because there's so much to learn, and it's always great to uh, share knowledge with other people, and so I will do my best to uh, provide some insight on at least what I know so far in my own journey. So the first question, he asked, if you could write a list of the five most important factors to getting a good mix, what would they be? And my answers to that are, one, uh, balance. So balancing the levels, making sure the things that are supposed to be heard are clear and making sure the things that are supposed to be loud are loud and um, kind of just making sure that nothing is distracting from the mix. Like either, you know, if something's too quiet, it's distracting because you're straining to hear it. If something's too loud and it's kind of painful, that's also distracting. So on a general level, balance is... Uh, I think uh, one of the most important factors for me, everybody's taste is different, but for me, very well-balanced mix is, uh, is important. And that starts with just setting the levels. And then we'll get into some other things about more things you can do to help balance things in a way that, you know, in the way that you want. So yeah, number one, balance. Uh, number two important factor for getting a good mix is clarity. So that kind of goes with balance, but um, getting clarity in your mix, that's a very important factor. And the ways you can get clarity uh, involve EQ, uh, arrangement, and stuff like your use of panning. And um, I'll expand on that. Uh, in a minute here. But yeah, okay, balance, clarity. Uh, the third one I thought of was arrangement and composition. Uh, for getting a good mix, a lot of it is actually done in the composition or the arrangement of the piece. So if you have complementary voices, it'll be a lot clearer and it'll be a lot easier to mix than if you have a bunch of things in the same pitch range. You know, if you have like three different sounds that are kind of down in the low register doing bass stuff, it's going to be very difficult to get all of those to be uh, coherent and like clear. Um, it's going to be confusing to the ear. And the same thing with, with high pitch stuff. If you have two guitars playing leads that are competing for your attention it's going to be a lot harder to mix that than if you have one guitar doing stuff up high and one guitar doing stuff down low or, you know, one voice doing something 
you know, in one register and there's nothing else in that sonic space that's masking it. So a lot of times, yeah, uh, uh, if the arrangement is, um, if you're mindful of that when you're writing the parts and when you're adding and layering to your mix, the easier it's going to be. Um, if you've kind of thought about it a little bit before, um, like what is important, what has priority and like what you want to stick out and making sure that you don't overwrite in that pitch range and you don't overwrite the other parts so they're, so it gets covered up. Um, the fourth thing, important factor for getting a good mix is the use of space and like the creation of space. And I've been, I feel like I'm very much just like cracking the very tip of the iceberg in my own exploration and mixing and producing with the use of reverb to create space and the use of reverb to kind of place things in a mix uh, front to back. So, you know, putting things further away from you that are more wet with reverb and the things that are drier will appear to be, you know, popping out more like closer to your ear. And um, that's been very interesting. I feel like I'm I still don't have like a great handle on it, but I feel like I've been getting, I've been getting some interesting advancements with, uh, just using reverb, um, more tactfully, I guess. But yeah, creating space with, with reverb, I feel like can make a huge difference in how all of your elements kind of mesh together and playing with the stereo field can create uh, clarity or glue depending on how, how you're panning things out. And that's uh, important in a good mix to get, you know, you like a wide mix, but you also like a glued mix. And um, yeah, and the last thing is kind of a three for one, uh, EQ compression and saturation. I feel like those three things are like the most used and most uh, critical kind of processing tools for getting a good mix for me, at least, you know, everybody's got different techniques that work for them. So EQ, I'm going to go into more detail uh, with the next question. Compression, I'm going to go into more detail with that and the question after that. But um, yeah, EQing effectively, um, compressing, which is still a mystery to me and I'm still kind of trying to get a handle on that and saturation, which recently in the past year or two, maybe saturation has been such a big kind of discovery for me in terms of a lot of times I'll put my mix up against a, you know, a commercial mix, like something I think is really well mixed. Um, and I'll be like, why does mine sound so weak and thin, even though the volume is, you know, still at the same volume. Um, and a lot of times what I've been learning is that there's a lot more saturation in the mixes that I like than I perceive. And, um, once I started messing around with saturation, 
that really kind of provided a big step, I think, in terms of getting sounds to be fuller and uh, richer, but also controlling dynamics and, um, yeah, saturation can shave off peaks in a much more natural sounding way than a compressor will. And it can also make things like the perceived loudness and the fullness, um, it can just make them sound bigger and more present while, you know, maybe even reducing the peaks in level, which depending on what kind of music you're making, it, it uh, can make a big difference when you add that up across all the tracks. Um, so like tape saturation, like the Kramer uh, MPX plugin or the J37 plugin or the Sound Toys Decapitator, the Sausage Fattener. Um, there's all kinds of um, like drive and saturation plugins and you can use them subtly where you almost don't even notice anything. And that's mostly how I'm using saturation is it doesn't audibly sound distorted or anything, but the peaks are being limited and it is getting, uh, you know, some overtones and harmonics that kind of make the sound uh, richer and more present. Um, so just like exploring saturation on guitars, on drums, on vocals, uh, on bass, it's been very um, enlightening. And I, I feel like I love saturation now and I'm using it a lot and um, it's become one of my most helpful mix tools. I feel like before I forget, I don't know if this will go in the official five um, answers for this question, but monitoring is another thing to be mindful of and just uh, being aware that what you're he like, if you're listening with speakers in a room, just um, being aware that you're not just hearing your mix, you're hearing the room as well. Every room has a certain quality to it in terms of like the reverb that it has in the room. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to like add reverb to a track, um, if your room has like some reverb in it, you're gonna be hearing that and you're gonna hear a wetter sound than is what it actually is in the mix. And if you, if you put headphones on, then that, that eliminates the room out of the equation. So um, it's always good to check in headphones uh, as well as, you know, it, it's more comfortable for me to work on speakers, but um, that presents some challenges with, with yeah, like room ambience um, because, yeah, you might be hearing a sound and it sounds like it's got reverb on it, but it's actually the reverb coming from your room, which... Um, is interesting to think about but also there will be certain areas in the room that have like if you walk around your room while a track is playing out of your speakers you'll notice in certain parts of the room the mix sounds different like the bass will be extra pronounced in certain parts of the rooms room and um, in other parts of the room the bass will almost like disappear um, so you know, if you think about that, if you were mixing in a different part of the room where, say, the bass was very pronounced, you might undermix your bass. Like, you might make the bass quieter than it should be. Um, or if you're in a part of the room where the bass is kind of getting canceled out by, you know, room nodes or standing waves, 
then you might overmix your bass so because you're not hearing it so you're cranking it up um so anyway it's it's just good to that's why it's it's helpful to listen to other music that you're familiar with um, in your listening position on your monitors just to kind of calibrate your ears to like what a good mix what that balance sounds like from where you're mixing um so i would i would do that listen to some music that you really like the the way it's mixed and then also when you're mixing um check on headphones uh do some of your mixing on headphones so the five things yeah balance getting your levels balanced clarity um making sure everything that you're supposed to hear you can hear and you're not straining to hear anything um kind of goes with balance arrangement and composition trying to write the music so that the things that are supposed to have your attention don't have a lot of competition and so the things you're supposed to hear have enough space around them uh to breathe uh the use of space like reverb and stereo effects um kind of there's a lot you can do in terms of getting things to sit um to be more present or more further away sounding in a mix with the use of reverb and like what i was saying it's the use of short reverbs that i've i've really been exploring lately that's been very cool um because before it was all just long reverbs that i was doing just uh really cavernous reverbs and I feel like I've only recently been kind of starting to find the value in short, subtle reverbs that create like a little bit more of a 3D sound. It gives it a tail, but it's like very subtle. And it's one of those things that you don't notice. You don't even notice it's there until you mute it. And then the sound sounds like very two-dimensional. But yeah. And then number five, EQ, compression, and saturation. I don't know if that answers the question, but I feel like those are the five most important factors for me. Um, and so this kind of leads into your next question, which is how to tactically EQ tracks to reduce muddiness and create space. So this is another one of those things. EQ is like, I just keep learning more and more about just how powerful it is and how how it really can uh shape shape your mix and really help things fit together that being said i'm you know still learning definitely not uh this is just my experience but um, filtering was like one of the first things that kind of made a big difference for me in my mixes so filtering out unnecessary frequencies um, so putting a high pass filter on sounds that don't have bass in them, like, um, for an example, a hi-hat sample. If you bring up a spectrum analyzer and you like a frequency analyzer, a lot of times you'll see in a sample like a hi-hat or a tambourine or something that's way up high in the frequency range, there's all this like bass stuff happening it's like rumble or something and it's like that really doesn't need to be there and you might not notice it when you're listening to just the sample but if you've got that over a bunch of tracks um it can add up and create just like a 
a lack of clarity. So if I've got something like a tambourine or a hi-hat, I'll always filter out the low frequencies. So for a hi-hat, and it depends on how dense the song is, like how many things are going on at the same time. The more things you have going on at the same time, the more extreme the filtering uh, will be for me. Like the more extreme I'll need to filter things. So in a very sparsely populated mix, I might filter out the hi-hat. I might put a 12 dB per octave high-pass filter at around like 500 hertz or higher. If I've got a very densely packed mix, I could have that filter up at like a thousand, uh, at like one K I could be filtering, um, with the high pass filter. And then, um, it's helpful to know which frequencies are the common problem frequencies. So I found that in my mixes, a lot of times when it sounds muddy or tubby or like, just like unclear, it's, it's often there's a buildup of, uh, frequencies, uh, usually around like somewhere between 200, 250, 300, 400, like between two and 500, that area I've found is often the culprit for, for muddiness. So a lot of times, you know, for a guitar track, I'll be cutting, uh, I'll be doing, you know, three D three DB cut at like 200 Hertz or something. And I'll also be high pass filtering, you know, maybe one, 100 Hertz to 250 Hertz. Um, sometimes, uh, for bass, I'll do a little dip, maybe like two DB somewhat narrow of a dip at 200 hertz or 250 hertz um if i'm if i have synth pads and they're playing higher notes or if they're playing lower notes like i'm always high pass filtering that and if it's like a if it's like a sizzly pad and there's like high frequencies in it and that's mainly what you're hearing in the mix then I'll cut a ton of the bass out. Like if you don't need to be hearing that, cause it'll just, uh, it'll kind of get in the way. It'll mask your actual bass. And um, you'll just get more clarity if you kind of leave the bass frequencies to be dominated by the kick in the bass. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to cut out everything, all the bass from everything except for the bass and kick. I mean, if you do that, you'll have a very clear kick and bass, but um, you know, there's a balance where, you know, you don't want the sound to be too unnatural. But uh, that kind of brings me to another thought. Um, EQing with the full mix, within the context of the full mix. Um, I wouldn't do too much EQing in solo. Because there's a big difference between how a sound sounds by itself and then how it functions in a mix. So whenever I would be cutting, you know, I'd be, if I'd be high passing, high pass filtering a guitar at 200 Hertz at 250 Hertz, I'd be like, wow, that sounds thin. But then whenever I have it in the context of the full mix and I'm hearing it with the bass, like in Voyage to the Yogurt Planet, like when those guitars are chugging 
synced up with the bass, the bass is doing all the bass pretty much, and those guitars are filtered, um, so you're really getting like the top end sizzle and like mid range. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, that 200 to 300, 200 to 400 range can get really tubby in there um, really easily. And so, yeah, and I guess when I'm doing a high-pass filter and I'm trying to figure out where would be a good place to put it, um, a common technique is to have your mix going let's say you're high-pass filtering a guitar and like it's like a lead guitar it's playing high notes and you're you want to cut out like uh, mud so you turn the high-pass filter on and then you as your mix is playing you slowly sweep it upwards until you can notice like that's sounding thin and then you back it off a little bit so you kind of want to find that spot where you don't even really notice that it's being high passed, um, and that you'll you'll um, you take it a little too far, and then you back it off. And then if you play that sound in solo, a lot of times you'll be surprised at like, oh wow, that sounds a lot thinner than I expected. But when it's in the mix, like I don't even really notice that those f frequencies are being attenuated. And I think it's also worthwhile to see what happens when you take it too far. Um, and to filter aggressively and just to see like what that does for your mix. Um, and I feel like that's what I do a lot of times with a lot of effects because even after doing so much mixing and producing over the past 10 years, some of these uh, sound like processes are so subtle that it's hard to hear. Like, is that making a positive difference or is that just making, is that doing anything? And a lot of the time, I'll I'll take the effect to an extreme to see how it is affecting the sound, and then I'll back it off, and I'll usually be kind of conservative with it, just because I don't fully, you know, I I would rather like not, I'd rather err on the side of not like damaging the sound too much. But um, yeah, that's been useful for me, especially with like compression saturation, just to kind of like clue my ear in on like what is this effect doing and then and then I back it off um EQing I've found 500 hertz that's an interesting frequency to play with 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 drums like in a lot of the punch funk love drums this I've already done this but like uh scooping out 400 500 hertz out of a snare drum sound and a kick drum sound can really, um, really changes the sound in a way that sounds more like polished and modern to me. So if you were working with a, you know, a raw snare drum sound, if you scoop out 500 hertz, 400 hertz, it's pretty, and like give it a little bump at like 200 it's interesting to see that that's that's one of those frequencies that's like really can change the way something sounds. So a lot of times I I mess with that with with drums that frequency 500. Okay, so you got like your mud frequencies uh, 200, 300, 400, and then you've got like this 
kind of 500 has its own like that's one to kind of play with cutting um i don't really boost that one much and then um a lot of times for bass guitar little boost at like 800 hertz can increase like the presence of it without it sounding honky but yeah for a bass i'll i'll do a little cut at 200 to 250 and then i'll do a little boost at 800 um so that just like has been something that has like worked pretty reliably to kind of make it a little less muddy make it a little more clear and then i've also been messing around a lot with with rolling off treble in a bass um and that it's such a it's such like a preference and like song dependent thing but i've just noticed that i had just by default been going bass full treble all the way open all the time and have started to notice that if i roll off the treble uh you know cut that string sound cut like uh, the metallic you know like grindiness if there's any of that um and it's just like that warm you know 1k and below sound that's like a that's a pretty cool sound and it's um it it actually opens up the higher frequencies in a similar way to when you cut the bass frequencies out of other stuff so that's um that's been something i've been liking recently is is messing around with rolling off the treble on stuff i've I've been high passing and cutting bass out of stuff for a while and now now i feel like i'm i'm starting to explore more cutting treble out of sounds like a lot of times snare sounds cut some of the treble rolled off it'll just be a little easier on the ears or clap sound um also i've started noticing in a lot of well-produced music I like, there's a lot of filtering in the treble where everything's not as bright as in some, you know, something I would tend to mix. So I've been experimenting with that. But um, yeah, let me just sum up my answer to your question, um, how to tactfully EQ to create clarity and reduce mud. I'd say look at 200 hertz and 250 you're going to want to dip those. You might, you know, maybe 300, 400, somewhere in that range. But usually like 250 is like a good place. That There's usually always, if you cut a little bit of that out of everything that occupies that area, it'll be clear. Um, I don't do that to the drums, just to like the melodic instruments. And be mindful of, you know, if you've got high percussion, um, you know, like white noise swooshes, thick pads, um, cymbals. Um, Yeah, just filter. If you want, bring up a a frequency analyzer and just see what sounds of yours like has these low-mid frequencies and sub-frequencies that aren't contributing anything to what you're hearing and just cut those out. And then another piece of advice that I feel like I feel like I've uh, 
learned the hard way many times is just to be very, very careful with boosting bass. Um, because I feel like one of the things that I've noticed about my mixes uh, is that the things that separate my mixes a lot of times from something like a commercial release, a lot of times is mine are too bassy. There's too much bass. Uh, that relationship isn't right. It's really hard to get the bass right, to have it full but not overpowering. Um, so yeah, I would I would never boost any sub bass, anything um, below like 100 hertz. Uh, I pretty much never touch that. And I think... Um, if I'm doing any boosting of those, you know, like a hundred hertz for a kick drum, or like if I ever do a boost in a lower than that, it's always very small, like one dB or something. And that's kind of, I feel like it's probably a good idea to, if you're gonna be cutting a frequency or boosting a frequency, make a big one and see how it sounds, like see, that'll help you identify like the character of sound that you're affecting. If you, you know, increase it by 10 dB, you'll hear like how that's gonna change the sound. But then, you know, make your actual boost between like one and three dB, like keep it pretty small. And I mean, that's, that's, that's worked for me, just like find the frequency that you wanna boost or cut by, you know, exaggerating it and then just, make the actual cut, you know, 3 dB or less, um, at least to start and be conservative with it and come back and listen to it later. And if you feel like it needs more of a cut, or more of a boost, then do that. But in general, cutting is going to be, is going to cause less problems than boosting. Boosting, you can get yourself into uh, a little bit of a hard situation with just because you can your mix can, you can just like lose a mix if you boost too much. Um, and it just, then you don't know where to, where you went wrong. And you've got a, I don't know, cutting is, uh, cutting frequencies is, is a better route. And if you do any boosting, do gentle. In terms of layering, like EQ with layering, it, sometimes, um, yeah, you really have to EQ aggressively to, layer things without it getting muddy um so i guess for an example like typically you don't want to have two things doing bass at the same time um but in a lot of you know chalk dinosaur songs there will be a bass guitar and there will be like a bass synthesizer or something that's playing like long notes or there's like two bass layers and whenever that's happening I'm always filtering one of them. The I'm filtering the bass out of one of them. Um, so one of them needs to be the primary bass of the song, and then the other one needs to be filtered and not interfere with that primary bass. At least that's the way I've approached it to make sure that those things uh, get along. I'll do a similar thing if I'm layering vocals or guitars. I'll have a primary one, like let's say a vocal, it's right up the middle, and then if I'm doubling it on the sides, like if I if I 
do a double and then a triple separate takes um, and pan them out to the sides, I'll filter those. I'll filter the bass out of those up to, you know, maybe 300 hertz or something um, just to keep things from getting muddy. But I'll have that primary vocal in the center, you know, more fully, uh, more of the full bandwidth. And I, I would do the same thing for guitars too. Like if you're going to double, if you're going to do a lot of layering um, and your mix starts to sound muddy, start to filter uh, your doubles and make sure that um, you don't have too much of that low mid stuff piling up. Oh yeah, another thing with EQ and reducing muddiness and creating space, I think it's it's really important that if you have any long reverbs or delays or effects in general that are being, um, you know, that are in addition to your sound, um, EQ those and either cut the bass out or uh, dip it at those mud frequencies, like 200 to 400. And especially like the longer the effect is, like the more thick and full it is in terms of like, you know, if you've got a three second big hall reverb and, you know, you've got a dense mix going on, you've got to cut, you know, well, you don't have to, but like I'll cut with a 12 dB octave filter, you know, 500 hertz up, you know, up to 500 hertz, maybe even further. Like if it's a longer effect, I'll go further, maybe 600 hertz, everything below that. Same thing with delays, that that stuff can really mud up your mix um, because it's repeating and it's got this long tail if it's a reverb and that's just masking everything. And what I've found is that you'd really be surprised that you can cut so much of that bass and low mid out of a long reverb and it's still you're still getting the, the effect of the reverb. It's still serving its purpose and creating that sense of space. And the essence of the effect and the essence of the sound is, is like up higher. And you're not, you, sometimes, a lot of times you'll find you're not losing any of that essence of the reverb effect by cutting uh, the bass and up to, you know, the longer the reverb, the higher you can cut, I feel like. But that, that's definitely big. But yeah, in general, to reduce muddiness, just look at all of your tracks, look at all of your sounds, cut the unnecessary bass, and experiment with doing a cut at 250 hertz. And doing that across your whole project on all the melodic tracks. You could try that and see how that affects your mix. Every mix is going to be different, but a lot of times that uh, is a common frequency for me to cut in terms of reducing muddiness, getting more clarity. That in combination with not over-mixing your bass and like boosting bass frequencies. And I have not touched yet on high frequencies, but there's a couple uh, common frequencies in the treble that can be troublesome. Um, I find that with guitars a lot. If you're getting harshness, or if you're getting harshness with, with anything really, but I find that guitars a lot of times, there can be some harshness that can be a little painful at high volumes, at 2, 2K, 2.5K. Um, 
I feel like 4K and 6K are also other harsh frequencies. Um, and you might have to, that's one of those times when it's helpful to scan around, like do a boost, uh, you know, a pretty generous boost and scan around until you find like the most offensive sounding frequency. And then that's the one that you need to attenuate. Um, and uh, 1K, 1,000 1, hertz, that's, that's often a... Uh, if something seems like not present or not, yeah, not not present, I guess sometimes that that one can be can help like bring something forward in a mix. A little one k boost. I think in general, though, it's always better to err on the side of caution with boosting. Um, that's usually where I get into trouble the most. Is if I, you know. If I boosted any lower frequencies or higher frequencies, and then I go listen to it in the car or on another system or the next day with fresh ears, uh, a lot of times that's it. I don't like it, and I I revert back to either just a much smaller boost or no boost. But I, I think you can be a little more aggressive with the cutting, but the boosting can get you into trouble. So I think it's best to make small moves with that and then kind of go from there. All right, the next question that John wanted to know was when and how to implement compression. So to be honest, compression is still like a bit of a mystery to me. I've spent a lot of time experimenting with it and, and working with it and um, I'm still, it's still a bit of a mystery to me and I feel like my ears are still developing to be able to hear what it's doing and like how to best use it. But um, here are some of the things that, that I typically do with compression. Um, so I think, you know, the idea of compression is to, you know, kind of provide dynamics control. So your peaks aren't as high and your so everything's kind of um, controlled more. And I've, I've found, maybe it's just me, but I've found that that like, it doesn't work like that for me. It's not an actually good way to limit peaks. Like a limiter does a much better job. But it, so what I'm using it for is to shape the tone, I guess, like the, the way it sounds more than paying attention to the dynamics. So in general, I think compression can make something sound bigger. Like it can increase the perceived size of a sound and it, it can increase the detail of a sound. So like with a vocal, something like what I almost always do with a vocal is I take the Waves LA-2A um, emulation and I really slam the vocal so it's getting like 10 dB of gain reduction. And um, it's weird. I can't do that with other compressors, but with that particular one, that degree of compression, it it really like increases all of the intelligibility and the detail of the vocal. So it sounds like super upfront and crispy and uh, very like articulate. And um, same thing with guitars. I won't do it with that compressor, but you know, just any, any compressor for guitars, um, the waves LA 76 or any, 
1176 emulation. 1176 was a like a classic hardware, like a classic compressor from I don't know the 70s or 80s. Anyway, that that works really good for guitars. Um, and I'm still not sure. Like you could probably get a similar sound with a lot of other different kind of compressors, but part of the thing for me has been like finding these particular ones that do that make a sound that I like. So the LA-2A I love for vocals. There's really, it's so simple that it's nice because it's easy to get lost in like tweaking controls and trying to figure out like, is that better? Or like, is that making the sound better? The LA-2A just has two knobs, so it's very simple. But it doesn't work for everything. It just works really well for vocals. And the 1176, that one's that one's pretty versatile, but it's also very simple. And um, that one's great for guitars in particular, and it's good for drums. Um, uh, I'm getting a little bit off track here. Let me get back to the question. Um, how and when to implement compression? Okay, so I use it a lot on guitars uh, to kind of pin them in place. So... If there's a guitar part that ha is a little bit too dynamic, I guess, like so certain parts of it are kind of like poking out of the mix and sound like, and some other parts are too quiet. If you squish it with a compressor, it kind of brings up the detail of the sound, like I said before, so that like um, you can hear, you can just like hear all of it better, like all of the part better. And it helps to kind of just like, yeah, I don't know how else to say it, pin it in the mix, like it'll sit better in the mix. Sometimes before something is compressed, it'll sound too like pokey, like it's like jumping out of the mix. It doesn't sound like a part of the mix sometimes. So sometimes if you smush a sound, it can mesh with the mix better. So a lot of times I'll do that with guitar. Um, uh, yeah, uh, not huge gain reduction for that, but like maybe anywhere like five and lower of gain reduction with, um, you know, it depends. Like if it's a punchy guitar part, I'll have a slower attack, you know, maybe 20 to 30 milliseconds and a fast release, like 50 milliseconds. But a lot of times a good setting that works for me for just general just like smushing a guitar part a little bit to have it sit better and more consistently would be, you know, like three to four gain, three to four dB of gain reduction with a two millisecond attack and a 50 or 100 millisecond release. Like that's a pretty, that's a, that's been a pretty reliable type of setting for guitar, for a single guitar part. So a lot of times, say I have two guitars, like in the, in spectrum or something like uh, a chalk dinosaur song typically i'll have an eq so on each of these guitar tracks i'll have an eq it's cutting the cutting the bass out with a high pass filter at around somewhere between 150 and 180 or 200 hertz have a little dip at like 250 or 300 and then i'll have a compressor on it just like um not like any kind of fancy 
hardware emulation compressor or anything, just a standard whatever compressor, um, either Logic or Waves C1. And I'll have that two millisecond attack, 50 to 100 millisecond uh, release with like a small amount of gain reduction, like three to four dB. Um, I'll have that. So I'll have that on both of the guitar tracks. And then I'll be sending those two guitar tracks to their own group, their own bus. And then on the bus, that's a lot of times where I'll put like a hardware compression, like a hardware compressor emulation, like in 1176. Um, and I'll like lightly compress the guitar group with one of those. And it doesn't have to be a hardware emulation. I just, uh, that's just like kind of what I've ended up doing. But that'll just kind of help the two guitar parts, um, kind of balance them together in case there's any wild discrepancies in like volume or anything like that. It just, uh, yeah, sometimes can help help things sound more glued or help them just be more consistently audible. And drum compression is particularly tricky for me and probably for a lot of people, but um, if I'm making sample-based music, and even if I'm making non-sample-based music, I don't do that much compression on the drums, at least on the individual drum tracks. Like, I don't compress, I don't... I usually don't have a compressor on the kick I usually don't have one on the snare um, I usually don't have one on the toms sometimes I'll uh, I'll put one on the overheads um, and not a lot like probably with drums I tend to err on the side of caution which for compression of drums is slow release or i mean slow attack and fast release that's just like a more transparent sound like uh for drums it's usually like 30 30 millisecond attack 50 millisecond release is like pretty safe with like a three to one or four to one ratio and then i'm not i'm not crushing it i'm just it's just you know one to three db of gain reduction um so then usually I'll have all of my drums, all of my drum tracks sent to their own group, their own bus. And then on that bus, uh, that's like, you know, all the drums together. Sometimes I'll put a compressor and compress all of the drums together, but I'm not like compressing each individual drum track. I'll compress the group and it'll be very light. But I, part of that's just because like, I'm never convinced that what I'm doing is actually making it sound better. So a method I've found that's been, I've liked, um, and seems like pretty safe, but you can still get like a good compressing, like compression sound because compression on drums can really make them sound a lot different. You can make them sound like really explosive, you know, like that when the levee breaks, but it is very tricky and... I think it's a pretty good exercise to experiment a little bit with um, over compressing, just doing extreme settings so you can hear how the compressor is working, how it's like affecting the sound so that you can, you know, then you could 
back it off if you wanted or what I do a lot because, okay, so if I start messing around with that, I'm doing extreme compression settings to just like see how I can make the drums sound, like see how the compression is affecting the drum sound. Because I feel like that's where compression has the biggest effect is on drums, especially drums that have like reverb or like a little bit of a room sound. Um, can really make them sound like big and full. But it can also like destroy them. Um, so what I like to do is parallel drum compression, which is, you know, you've got all your drum tracks, they're going to your drum bus. Um, and then from that bus, I do ascend to another bus. So I've got my drum bus and then I've got this drum effects bus. And on that uh, drum effects bus, I put a compressor on that. And I heavily, like aggressively compress that. And then I bring the fader up and mix in the volume of that super squished compressed drum sound with the regular dry, unmolested drum sound. And that way it's like a little more non-destructive. You're, um, it's just like, uh, it's been like a good way for me because like, I don't feel like I have the best grasp on drum compression and it's very hard for me to keep perspective sometimes if I'm messing around with a compressor on drums, like it's very hard for me to tell like if it, it's actually better or if it's what's happening. So I, I kind of always err on the side of caution. I keep my dry drum signal pretty dry. And then I just have a super smashed or, you know, affected drum bus that I mix in. I think another very uh, useful and like common form of compression that I use is side chain compression which especially in like sample based more maybe more electronic um productions but even in regular like any productions it can be useful sidechain compression um that's the kind of compression i always always use that so especially like you know if i've got pads thick synth pads and i'm trying to have a kick and snare cutting through and they're getting buried i'll put a compressor on the pad set the side chain to the kick or maybe even the kick and the snare and then yeah then uh, you know set the threshold so that it doesn't sound too crazy but like you know you can definitely tell the kick and the snare are more audible and more punchy and i'll do that on uh the bass i'll do that on guitars sometimes if it's like a a dense guitar part like um you know, constant chords kind of thing, or like a constant pattern, I'll sidechain that. And I'll even sidechain vocals sometimes. And a lot of times I'll, I'll sidechain the effects. So if there's long reverbs, long delays, I'll sidechain those to the kick and sometimes to the snare, just so the kick and snare are always, they're never being, you know, buried. And, um, yeah, I, I probably do more sidechain compression than I do actual compression because it's it's so tricky, like, for me to get compression right. I mean, guitars are pretty forgiving. Drums are kind of hard to get right, so I kind of don't... I kind of err on the side of not doing that much if I'm ever in doubt. Um, and the, the parallel drum compression is kind of a good way to 
still get the effects of compression of like increasing the size of the drum sound but without destroying them just a little safer um and for parallel drum compression my favorite is the sound toys devil lock there's just like i don't know if there's anything else that sounds like that it's another one of these super simple you know two knob plugins but it's that's pretty much what I always use for my parallel drum bus compressor. Um, sometimes the only other one that could come close to that one is the, it's called the UBK-1 by Kush Audio. And that can also do a really good, like, super squished, um, like, pumpy drum sound. And yeah, the the UB or the uh, Kush Audio plugins, those are pretty cool. And it's a subscription model, so it's I pay ten bucks a month, and then I get access to all of their plugins. And all of their plugins are like based around like hardware vibe, I guess, like analog vibe and like saturation, like subtle saturation. And um, yeah, those are those are pretty cool. I. Those are fun. Um, but uh, kind of brings me to another point. Um, for actual dynamic, like for actual volume control and like dynamics control and limiting, you know, peaks and spikes, uh, I feel like saturation is, is better than compression. Saturation, just like it sounds more natural. Because a lot of times with compression, you get this weird kind of poppy sound that's just like pokey and like, um, it can sound weird sometimes. And saturation will shave off the peaks. It'll increase your like the fullness of the sound. And it, it, it almost does a better job of actually compressing a sound than a compressor in my experience. Maybe if you're using... That's what I, I wonder sometimes about, like, maybe if I had, like, a an outboard compressor, it would, it would be better, but I am not sure about that. I think there's some potential for uh, cool effects with compression, too. If you were to have, like, an effects reverb uh, bus, like a reverb bus, and you compressed that. So, you know, it's like a 100% wet reverb um, channel, and you compressed that a lot, so it's it was being like expanded by this compression and then it maybe if you put a sidechain compressor on top of that um could be an interesting sound um but yeah i think in a nutshell i don't compress my individual drum channels i only compress the drum bus and that's only sometimes like a lot of times there's no compression there might be a saturation plug-in on it for like light saturation like a, a tape emulator um, and then if I want to, if I want to compress drum sound to make them sound bigger and to like pump them up a little bit, I'll do that with a parallel bus, uh, and that'll be over compressed, you know, very heavy effect. And then I'll mix in the volume of that. And yeah, if you're actually trying to increase perceived loudness or actually like limit peaks, I find that tape saturation plugins work a lot better than actual compression for that 
um, or or any saturation plugin like the decapitator from Sound Toys is good for that. Uh, that the sausage fattener that you were looking at that that does a good job of that. Um, so I use probably I definitely use more saturation than compression on drums. I just have that parallel drum compression bus usually, and that's 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 it. Um, if I'm if I'm going to be mastering self-mastering which is most of the time I'll put a compressor on the master output and I'm I've become very cautious with that because I don't really always know if what I'm doing is making a positive difference and if I can't tell then I'll, I'll just be extra careful with it but typically like the most standard settings for like a full mix mix bus is a slow attack is is safer usually so like 30 milliseconds and then you know 50 to 100 millisecond release that's that's pretty safe and then you know one to three db of gain reduction for that with like a two to one ratio or something and usually for mix bus compression i'm either using the waves sslg bus compressor like the um it's a it's an emulation of uh legendary compressor i use that one or from the kush audio plug-in subscription i'll use like the uh novatron sometimes but really like the most powerful one has been the psp vintage warmer like that thing just like inflates tracks in like a really nice way and also combines like saturation peak limiting uh that one's definitely like a plugin where i actually was like this sounds better so yeah it's very tricky and it's not not much help here but typically i'm doing pretty light on the mix bus with a slow attack and a fast release and if you're doing a slow song, you can mess around with if you increase the the release, um, listen to the cymbals, and sometimes you can hear what that is doing to the sound where, like, the kick will hit with the cymbal and the cymbal will, like, kind of swell or bloom in a different way when the release is slower. Um, if you want to kind of learn more about it from another source that's probably better than me... Uh, I would recommend looking on YouTube for the Kush audio tutorials because I think he's he's got an interesting way of describing compression and and gives a couple useful kind of exercises to try to train your ear. And um, yeah, I found that, that useful. And also just like listening to his podcast, the UBK Happy Fun Time Hour, He's always talking about compression and EQ and not in a totally like technical way, but a lot of times in kind of a higher, uh, higher level, like uh, more like a philosophical level, which is nice because it's like much more, you, it could be applied to any, no matter what DAW you're working in or, or what plugins you're using. It's kind of more just bigger picture uh, conceptual stuff. So I highly recommend that one and and watch watch the YouTube videos. They're they're shorter and more concise than the podcast. But he has one on compression. He might have more than one on compression.
and that might uh that might help. So the next question is stereo versus mono. How do you think about the stereo field and utilize panning or stereo imaging plugins to add dimension to a mix? Okay, I'll cut right to the chase here. Here's how I approach it usually. Um, kick is always right up the middle. Snare is always right up the middle. Lead vocal is always right up the middle. Bass guitar is always right up the middle. Um, and then if I've got two guitars, you know, one's panned out to the left, one's panned out to the right. Not all the way, but, you know, anywhere from like 10 to 30%. Um, it helps separate them and helps you hear the two parts individually more. So if you're, it depends, like the more you pan stuff out, the more distinct and separate from the mix it sounds. And then the more panned inward it is, like the more mono it is, like the more congealed and glued it sounds. So whenever I have like, whenever, you know, like with Chalk Dinosaur recordings, there's usually like a rhythm guitar part and a lead guitar part. So usually, you know, those will be panned so they're not right on top of each other. Um, and it'll just help a little more, create a little more clarity between the two parts. Um, if I'm, if I'm trying to like bolster a lead, say I have the lead panned right up the middle and then I want to like bolster that and widen the sound, I'll, there's a couple ways that I'll widen, I'll try and widen a, a sound, like a mono source, like a guitar mic. Um, one of them's through reverb. If you have a stereo reverb, that can help kind of like fill out the sides. Um, a stereo echo or delay, that can like stereoize a sound in a nice way. Um, I'll double or triple a guitar part sometimes or a vocal and pan that out to the left and right. And it depends. Like, you know, if you've tripled a guitar part or a vocal, the closer, the tighter you have those outside ones panned in, the more of like a chorus effect you'll have. And then the wider you make it, the more it'll sound almost like one voice. <clears throat> Whereas if you have them panned in kind of on top of each other, it sounds like, you know, chorusy and um, like an ensemble almost. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll use chorus plugins sometimes for widening. There's this, uh, or uh, what is it? Infected Mushroom plugin called Wider. I think that one's pretty cheap. To be honest, I don't use that one much. It has a very dramatic effect. Like the deal with that plugin was a lot of times if you use stereo plugins and like widening effects, a lot of times if you collapse it to mono, like the mix, you'll have like phase issues or something, which I don't worry about that too much because who's listening in mono, but, um, I don't use widening effects much, like uh, stereo spreaders and stuff, like the Infected Mushroom Wider plugin, just because when I do it, I can hear the difference, and I'm like, ooh, that's wider, but then I, you lose something at the same time, too, like you lose focus. Um, 
And a lot of times I just can't decide, like, I don't know if that's making this better or not. So I just, I won't do it. And I'll usually end up going with something like, say I have a guitar lead, I'll send to a chorus bus. Like I'll, I'll do an effect send and I'll, you know, I'll use a chorus effect, a stereo chorus or a stereo flange. Like the, uh, I mean, any flanger plugin would work, but I, I particularly like the meta flanger by Waves. Um, there's a couple of presets on there that I just always sound nice and they'll widen the sound, but it's transparent. Um, another, like another chorus, a chorus plugin that I like is the, uh, tall Juno, I forget what it's called. Um, that company TAL, they make a, uh, a chorus plugin that's kind of like an emulation of the chorus effect that's on the old Juno, Roland Juno synthesizers, which is a very nice sounding chorus, but that one might even be free. And I, I really like that one. If I'm going for a chorus effect, I, I like the tall Juno chorus. But yeah, reverb, delay, chorus, flange. I, I don't use phasers that much, but... And then, you know, doubling and tripling and then panning. That, that's how I widen sounds. Um, but in general, yeah, like the kick, snare, bass, vocals, always up the middle. And then I spread things out, um, usually like percussion. I'll spread those out. Like I'll put a shaker a little bit to one side and then I'll put the tambourine to the other side. Um Sometimes if you, like if I have a snare drum that sounds like, if I want to make that sound wider, uh, yeah, either the reverb, stereo reverb, like a short, bright reverb, or if you were to like layer clap sound, like two different clap sounds, one on the left, one on the right, or like a snap, like two different snap sounds on the left and the right with the snare drum, sometimes that can, it'll, the the, the top end of that, collective sound will be very wide but you know the thump of it will still be like uh down the middle i think it depends too on what you want from your music and what kind of music like what kind of sound you like because i don't know if you've listened to old music and noticed um like music from the 70s and like 60s like yeah, 60s and 70s. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the panning is crazy in that. It's like the whole drum set will be on one side of your speakers and like the bass will be all the way to the right. It The the panning was so extreme, but some of those sound really cool and uh, it works really well. You, you definitely get a ton of separation with panning, but I guess the more extreme things are panned, the less together they sound, so kind of uh, depends on what you're going for and you know a pretty good method for any of these questions is to use a reference track so like the kind of sound that you're going for find a song that is that sound and you feel like does a really good job it's really well mixed um and you love the production on and pull that into your session like say like a Tycho song or something and you have a, and you're not sure how to pan, you know, 
certain things, um, then you check the reference and, and see how they did it. Or like, if you're unsure, like, is my snare drum too loud? Or like, is my, uh, are my guitars too dry? Or something like that. <clears throat> Definitely can help to have a reference that you know that you really like the way that is mixed and that sounds. It can be a little bit discouraging and like, sometimes I, I don't often use references, but if there's a certain song that like, there's a pretty direct reference that I can use where it's like, it's a very similar arrangement. You know, there's like one guitar, the synth with like this 80s tone. And there's a song that I know like nails that sound. I will, you know, check that and see, um, at least get ballpark uh, with the balances and stuff. But yeah, it's usually pretty sad whenever I compare uh, to reference. It's usually like, oh, there's a funny meme about it, but it was, uh, I'm always like, yeah, this mix sounds good. And then I, and I check a reference mix, which, you know, you got to take with a grain of salt because it's, it's mastered. Um, so it's a little, it's not a great direct reference, but like, yeah, it's usually, usually a little deflating, but maybe that's, it's, it, it does help point out things that could be different. Like a lot of times I'll pull up a reference and, and I'll, I'll realize something that I didn't realize before. Like, oh, my bass is way, I have way too much sub bass in this mix or, um, like my drums are way too quiet or they're too loud or something. Um, if something's like way off bass, but you're not aware of it because you've been like working on this song for so long, a reference can sometimes help. But, you know, I don't use it all the time. I kind of infrequently use it. So maybe more for mastering, I'll use it. But, uh, yeah, I think that's everything. Um, I feel like all these topics, they're, they're so deep that it's hard to really encapsulate all my thoughts, um, on these, but, um, we can definitely talk more about any of this stuff, uh, later. And I think, uh, you've got the right idea. Just keep experimenting and kind of... Yeah, just keep trying things and keep trying things that maybe seem extreme and see what it does and try things that maybe shouldn't work and um, use plugins in ways that you don't think they're supposed to be used and kind of just, I feel like the experimentation is a huge, uh, that's like the way you kind of learn um, kind of little tricks and stuff that um, work for you and also kind of get a grasp of like what certain effects are doing. So yeah, just keep experimenting and, um, let me know if there's anything, uh, anything else I could help with, um, with mixing or questions or anything. And to anyone else out there, if, uh, you had any questions about any chalk dinosaur music or mixes or mixing and mastering in general, composition anything like that um would love to have more stuff to talk about 
So send an email to chalkdinosaurpodcast at gmail.com with your question, and uh, I'll put it on the podcast. And that's that's it. So I hope everyone out there has a good uh, has a good day and a good week and a good year. All right, we're out of here. Hit the music. Every time I hear.